Hello and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Philip Thompson, and with me today is Eric Armstrong. Hello. How you doing, Eric? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Excellent. So uh, we have a big episode in front of us, so episodes. This episode is episode 29. And uh, if you've been listening to us for a long time, you've noticed every once in a while we speak the name of this letter with some fear, uh, saying that we'll eventually get around to it. And that, of course... The segment that must not be named. Exactly. Uh, But today we are going to embark on our... Are. And and that, that means a lot of different things in different contexts and to different people. And uh, for those of you who've been following the way we dance around between vowels and consonants, this uh, means that we're going to have to dance even more because we're doing sort of two in one, two for the price of one, yeah. both vowels and consonants in one episode. So uh, that that's our plan. But um, it's going to be a bit of a journey, don't you think, Phil? Yes, there's a lot to cover, and uh, that's why we've sort of furrowed our brows when considering it before. Uh, not only because it's uh, both consonant and vowel, but because there's an awful lot of variety and an awful lot of opinion about mm. how these sounds ought to be made. So uh, I, I think that there are a couple of strategies when embarking on long journeys. Uh, one of them is to very carefully plot the way and to uh, make precautions and so forth. And that's a very orderly way of doing things and probably very wise. But I'm not emotionally suited for such things. So instead, we're going to simply start driving and head generally in the direction that we think we're heading. And if we miss something along the way, we'll circle back and pick it up in a later episode. Fabulous. That sounds like a fun trip. Now, I want to pick back up where you were uh, talking about the dual consonant-vowel nature of this sound, and maybe we ought to just speak a little bit about what we think a consonant is as opposed to a vowel. Mm. It's a pretty fundamental def- definition. Sure. So, to, to kind of fudge it out, a, a vowel seems to be a more open sound. Vocal folds vibrating, so there's a voicing on a vowel, uh, whereas a consonant uh, is going to have an added feature of some kind of bending of the sound, usually caused by a closure or partial closure of the oral tract, the space above the vocal folds. So you might have your tongues get, tongue, tongues, I only have one, uh, my, my tongue might get close to, say, my uh, alveolar ridge, and that uh, closure I could close it off completely and make a sound like a ta-ta-ta kind of sound, or I could close it off just enough so that some turbulence is entering into the airstream, and so I might get a kind of a th sound, for instance, if my tongue approached my upper front teeth. Um, Now, of course, some consonant sounds have voicing, and some do not. So we have both of those options with consonants. When we talk about ard, though, generally, I think we're talking about a voice sound, aren't we? Yeah, mostly. I, I think that there's another term that we are going to be throwing around and have been throwing around in the past, and that is phoneme. Mm. The, and, and if you've listened to the show before, you, you know what we're talking about. But it, essentially, a, a phoneme is a category of sounds. And uh, 
when it comes to this particular phoneme, it's a pretty broad category. There are a lot of things that are thought of as versions of R mm. uh, that are quite different from each other. In terms of voicing, there are unvoiced versions. In terms of uh, how vowelish or how consonanty they are, uh, that that kind of variety uh, sometimes makes people think that the category has been poorly defined. That is the category of R. Mm. If you go to the Wikipedia page on rhotic consonants, uh, I always like when I'm looking at Wikipedia pages to look at the discussion section. Uh, mm. You'll click the discussion tab and you'll get a more passionate <laughs> version <laughs> of the debate. And uh, there are quite a few entries saying, why, why on earth would you include that weird sound? That's not an R. My version is an R. That version that you do is a different thing altogether. And uh, we're probably more open for that kind of feeling or interpretation on this sound than with any other that I can think of. So if we have a phoneme as an umbrella that covers a whole bunch of variations, we might call those variations allophones. Is that right? Though? Yeah, that's fantastic. So each little sub-variety that makes up the full set of possibilities of what we think of as conceptually an R. Another way now, to think about it is the letter. The letter. Yeah. The letter R. The symbol that we use yeah. when we're writing. Should we take a little journey into the symbol of R? It has uh, a pretty simple history. Uh, it, it started as an Egyptian hieroglyph of a, a dude facing to the left uh, with a cool little beard. Uh, however, that the, the phoneme being described was a TP, which I take to be ta. And uh, it was called when it moved into Phoenician, Resh. So that's when it started representing R. And the uh, simplified version of the dude facing left was essentially a triangle with its point facing left, but a tail coming down from the right side, looking kind of like a backwards P. Hmm. And then the Greeks turned it around to face the other direction and rounded it up and turned it into turned it into Rho, which was the Greek letter for R. Uh, but it looks like a P in Roman alphabet. Uh, there's a large version and a small version. I won't go into details about that. And we can talk more about variations in symbols when we get to the phonetics of it. So I'm, I'm confused. This is Rho is Roman and not Greek? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It is Greek. I must ah, have okay. spoken. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you can see the uh, the uh, fraternities and sororities, they have their Greek letters, and, and right. Rho is one of them. Right. Uh, and uh, so uh, from this this word, Rho, comes the the adjective dis describing R-ish things, rhotic, yeah. as John Wells created. Yeah. He named that. It, and it was in the 60s, I think, and it's an interesting thing to think about, the fact that up to that point, people were using words like R-ish that tells you how really undefined the field of thinking about these variations was, that as as recently as that, an entire term to describe the category of R-ishness uh, could be invented. And it certainly caught on and 
Essentially, it is now the standard term to describe anything relating to R. Yeah, and it has a nice sort of scientific je ne sais quoi. Yes, yes. Uh, roticism. Uh, Roticization. There, just so everybody's clear, it is pronounced rotic and not rotic. Uh, yes. Although my... Uh, uh, speak the text out loud feature on Adobe Acrobat seems to think it's rotic and it turns it into uh, a more interesting story when they're talking about all the roticism uh, right. in the text. So how broad is this category of R? Well, let, let's, uh, we, we talked about it being both vowel and consonant. Yeah. How can that be? I mean, if... If it is a vowel, we know it's an open sound. If it's not a vowel, if it's a consonant, then there's some kind of closure. Um, is there a category, Phil, that somehow fits between vowels and consonants? Why, yes, there is. <laughs> uh, yeah, certainly, uh, as we know and as we talked about when talking about the, the consonant L, uh, there is a territory in between uh, where the shaping of the vocal tract that makes vowel difference becomes close enough, the articulators come close enough that they set up a bit of turbulence. And in that zone, it might be a little bit difficult to tell which is which, but as soon as you reach a point of some disturbance in the uh, vibrating airstream, you get what we call an approximant. Mm. And approximants are about proximity in a way. The thing that differentiates a vowel from an approximate is how close the articulators are coming. But they're the most distant uh, of any of the consonants. That is to say, if you get any closer in the same spot, you'll go from approximate into fricative. Mm. And any closer than that, you'll get a trill or a plosive. Right. So, so yes, th there are certainly R's that fall into all categories of articulation, yeah. but there are R's that are approximates. Right. And so, there are things that we think of as R-ish yes. that are just vowels. Yeah, I think that might be a really... To think about it as a sliding scale of... Hmm contact or, or a sliding scale of distance uh, if for example I'll just model a couple of them and I won't go into deep explanation about them if I make a rrr sound I'm making pretty strong contact and in some languages that's clearly an R rrr. if I don't get so close and I say ra 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 then I'm in the approximate territory and if I say R R I'm not being I'm far enough away in terms of the articulators that it's really a vowel and not a, a consonant. Yes. And you could imagine that there's a sort of sliding scale in in languages where some things are approximantish and kind of vowelish, and it might be hard to distinguish between the two. Mm -hmm. There's another way of thinking about this difference between R, the phoneme, acting as a vowel and acting as a consonant, we, we could say that R is a consonant and that in some varieties of language or accent, 
that R is pronounced so weakly as to have disappeared. Hmm. And so, so, so it's kind of a, a different way of thinking about the sound, so that uh, a, a different kind of phonology that we are, we're approaching the thinking of how this works in a slightly different way. And so R is a broad category, and we think of it as a consonant. And we set a rule that when R appears in these environments, the rule says that in this accent, that consonant has gotten weaker and weaker to the point where it has disappeared altogether. Yeah, there's a positional variation in the pronunciation of lots of consonants. And what's inherent in the way we think and talk about R is an understanding of its history in the development of English, for example, but also a sense of what's there in the spelling. And those two things obviously intertwine. That we see a word written, and there's an R in it, but no R pronounced. Uh, we might say that R has been dropped, or we might say its pronunciation has shifted from uh, consonant, even approximate, to vowel. That there isn't a loss, but a change. Right. And sometimes it helps when we can compare one group of vowels or consonants with another group of vowels and consonants and say, oh, it acts similar to the way this other group works. So uh, in your description of that, I, I think of uh, final L. We've talked about that in an yeah. earlier episode where we have feel and that that dark L might progress further back into the velar zone and then the tip of the tongue might drop out and we might end up with a pronunciation like few. And that L has become a vowel for all intents and purposes. Yeah. In the mind of the speaker, the L is still there, even yes. though its, it's history and its spelling are represented somehow in the speaker's mind. By a different kind of sound. But it's still functioning in the same way that an L is. And acoustically, it's actually very similar to the L, um, but it's missing a component that comes from the action of the front of the tongue. One way of demonstrating that with L is that I might say feel, F-E-E-L, as feel, no consonant, no approximation, just vowel. But I might also say, I feel all... I feel all right. And then the consonant component comes back in because of the way I move from one sound to the other. So I still have an L sitting in there in my conception, an unconscious L that exists even if it's not pronounced. So similarly, we might have an accent where once upon a time there was an R at the end. I fear it, mm -hmm. uh, and I fear, and that R slowly disappears to fear, fear, I fear it, uh, and so that fear has no R consonant quality, except when I add in a vowel, I might need to link it, and so I put the R back in, I fear it. Uh, and so it's possible that we could have a parallel structure to that L with an R. So within English, uh, because there are major varieties of English that have a difference in how they treat that particular kind of R, uh, we have these two classes of accents, rhotic accents and non-rhotic accents. But really, when we're using that term, we're really talking about that particular kind of R, mm. the 
the positional variant of R after a vowel. Right, because those speakers aren't losing R altogether. Correct. They're just using what might have been called R coloring of certain vowels at certain times. And, and they're not losing the concept of R. They still think there's an R in there. Uh, we'll get into confusions about that, I think, later on, because there can be interesting echo effects when people conceptualize a vowel, or rather a consonant, uh, that may not be in the word, hmm. but it's in the pronunciation of the word. So, let's, uh, let's take a look, if we can, at some of the variations in our pronunciation, how this phoneme turns up in languages, so that we can get an idea of how broad the category is. Okay. So, probably, if we start with the most constricted, we don't really have a plosive form of R. Yeah, the closest we have is a tap. Exactly. So, uh, why don't you go ahead and describe the articulatory uh, gesture of the tap. Sure. A tap is a single stroke of the tongue. So, it, for the tapped R, the, the front uh, musculature of the tongue comes up and strokes the gum ridge in a single uh, action. To me, it's very similar to a trill, except that it's got a single stroke. Uh, I like to say that a tap happens between two vowels more easily than it does in other contexts, because the flow of the vowel allows for the tongue to do this kind of Bernoulli effect action where it comes up and touches mm -hmm. the gum rib very quickly. Uh, so we might hear it in a, an articulation of something like the word very, uh, repeated very quickly, very, very, very quickly, uh, we get a very little abrupt tap of the gum ridge. So the, we could call that position medial. When that mm. R phoneme, the tapped R, happens in between vowels, ara, 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 you get that little moment. But you could just as well think of it as the first sound, an initial sound, radish, Regular. Regular. Uh, you could also think of it as the final sound, far. Uh, so, in, for me, those feel like single stroke trills. Um, yeah. But they, they, they're not single stroke trills. Um, there has to be some kind of airflow before mm. the tap for it to function like a tap, to me. Uh, it's hardest to do it, I think, after a fricative. So, you're saying something like fried rice. Uh, where we get a single little, and the, the airstream is through the fricative. So uh, if I so were we to take the action. F off of fried, ride, fried, ride, fried, fried, fried. I may fried. be doing a little fancy footwork there, uh, but I think I can do it without any initial airflow. But it, it it's harder for me to do. The, the problem, as I see it, is that it be, it's it could turn into a plosive. Yes. And that if, if we get closure and air buildup, then it really is turning into a plosive. And then it's more like tied rice instead of, uh, or, or fried tice, or whatever that would be. <laughs> yes, uh, tied. Yeah, we got to get, you got to get that little gestural 
flick of the tongue. Then let me do a sequence. Since for some reason we're stuck on the word fried, uh, I'll do it with the F, but a tap. Fried. Then I'm going to do it without the F. Fried, which I think is still a tap. And now I'm going to do a, a D. Died. So uh, the sequence again is fried, fried, died. That really is about holding long enough for a little bit of pressure to build up before yes. releasing. And that's a subtle distinction between a plosive and a tap, but it's a, it's a noticeable distinction. It is. And that little moment of silence that from which the D bursts forth is an important aspect of a plosive that, uh, it, you know, you, we kind of enjoy these things. That we get our <laughs> pleasures in small doses. And that, that moment of explosion, uh, you have to crave the silence before it, from which it arises. Um, that was beautiful, so, man. So that's the tap, the tap dar. So we, we couldn't talk about it without talking about the trill. But So what is um, a trill, Phil? How, how on earth Actually, is let me back up and just uh, remind us that, that that's voiced. That tap voiced. is voiced. And all our taps and flaps on the consonant chart are voiced. Can I do an unvoiced tap? It's kind of tough, but uh, and I think that it's technically possible. I can't see why it wouldn't be technically possible. And it's pretty unvoiced when you say it after a voiceless consonant. So think like fried. It the voicing really is coming in after the R. Well, then, then really, I think that explains it very well. That if the tap is something that's happening sort of ballistically in between usually one vowel and another, the voicing kind of doesn't have enough time to stop in order to actually be unvoiced because the tongue is moving through a stream of voicing. I'd have to imagine that I were whispering fried, fried, fried. So you can do it, but it usually doesn't happen because there's voicing all around it. Yeah, sure. So multiple iterations of this same ballistic activity is a trill. Mm. We kind of haven't talked about trills at all on the show, have we? We haven't. Cool. So really what is required is the Bernoulli effect. I don't think we've talked about it. Oh, Phil. Bernoulli effect. You have to tell us about that. Okay. So this guy named Bernoulli. Uh, which is spelled B-E-R-N-O-U-L-L-I. That spelling counts on the quiz, everyone. Remember that. Uh, (laughs) The Bernoulli effect is what keeps planes in the air. And uh, it is essentially the notion that all things being equal, faster-moving air is of lower pressure than slower-moving air. So if you can get a situation where a block of air has a faster-moving part and a slower-moving part, and you can imagine currents in the airstream, that faster moving part will be low pressure and so comparatively there's a pressure differential and so in the case of an airplane wing there's lower pressure above the wing because the air has to move more quickly over the curved surface and so there's a pressure differential which creates lift and pulls the airplane wing up it only works when the plane is going super fast to make that differential in airspeed between the above the wing and the below the wing part now when we here's the example that I usually give and I'm trying to think of a way to do it on a podcast Uh, if you were to take a card out of your wallet 
you can pause your iPod while you do this. Uh, it really works if it's like a Metro card. Oh, perfect. That's sort of a ticket, yeah? The bookmark. A bookmark. So if you were to place it flat on a table and then blow down directly beside it, you can imagine the air would spread out over the top of it. And as the air flows over the surface, it should create a little bit of lift and pick it up. Mm. If you've got the airspeed and the direction tuned correctly, the card will lift, and then there'll be airflow underneath the card, and it will get sucked back down. So you can actually get some vibration in that card. Mm. And that's how your vocal folds work in voicing. Air pressure builds up, they're blown apart, and then a low-pressure zone exists, and so they close, and no low-pressure zone exists. And then air pressure builds up, and boom, another cycle happens. That cyclic reiteration, oscillation, of the creation and destruction of this low-pressure zone is what happens in trills. And voicing is the first trill. It's a very, very fast, very, very smooth trill at the glottis. Mm. Although we could do a really uh, slow trill at the glottis, like so. Uh, that glottal fry is an instance of a slow period trill. I th think one of the articles that you researched gave a number 30 hertz for the trills in language. Mm. Uh, but I actually can only uh, figure out what that means by making the trill myself. Yeah, the, the fact of the matter is that different speakers of different languages use trills at different tempi. Uh, so a Spanish trill, the tongue will, will buzz more quickly at a higher frequency than someone, say, with a Scottish trill. They're both made in the same place, but the, the actual pitch, the sound of that trill, will be a higher note, if you will, yeah. for certain speakers. Because the fundamental frequency of your voice is about how quickly the opening and closing is occurring. That's what pitch is. That's what we're perceiving and interpreting as pitch. So you any place where you make a closure with elastic surfaces uh, so that you can direct airflow through that opening and then the elasticity of that opening will close it again uh, when a low pressure zone is created. Any kind of... Uh, th that requires bracing and uh, springiness. Uh, and most people can manage to make one of these at their lips. They brace their lips together, but keep the middle part soft enough so that when air blows through, it blows through and then the lips close again. So... Right. Now, we're now doing that without voicing in it, yes? Yes. With voicing. Without. So the periodic vibration of the lips is not necessarily connected to the periodic vibration of the vocal folds. They can happen independently. Indeed. So the next one back is the one that we've taken this long journey to get to, which is the R one. There is a bilabial trill in uh, language in Papua New Guinea, the name of which I 
don't remember. Uh, but it's a pretty rare sound. The alveolar trill is quite the popular R sound. Indeed. And if we think about it, what, how are we going to make a lip trill with our tongue? Well, we need an opening, and we need to be able to cover that opening in some way. So in all likelihood, we're probably going to brace our tongue's sides against our teeth somewhere, or against our alveolar ridges on the sides, making a little soft closure at the front somewhere. Probably on the alveolar ridge, maybe further back. And then by blowing air through that, we're going to create the failure of that flow. We're going to create an ever-exploding bubble of air pressure. So, an example. And the unvoiced version would be... Now, it's interesting, actually, that... Uh, I believe some years ago now, somebody on the Vastavox list server described R in terms of vibration. And what they were referring to was vocal fold vibration, voicing. Mm. And uh, a helpful poster uh, chimed in saying, that's confusing because vibration is a trill. And it's more common to hear the term vibration in speech studies referring to trills and not to voicing. Huh. And I was really surprised by this when I looked at the Wikipedia page on rhotic consonants. Uh, it dropped this reference that I had no support for, which is that rhotics are also called tremulants. Huh. That's a new one to me. Uh, it was Tremulant. to me as well. I sort of get it. It's It tremors, it shakes. For people familiar with Fitzmaurice voice work, the tremor of the leg is exactly this kind of periodic thing, just not with air pressure. Yes. So, And, and yeah. for some people, the tremor of the leg, there's sort of an antagonist going on, well, right? Yeah. One muscle in the front, one muscle in the back, kind of taking turns, contracting and releasing. And the In a trill, there's no contraction and release. Exactly. Right? It's physics that make the trill happen as the air flows over it. I'm not flexing the top surface of my tongue, then flexing the lower surface of my tongue. And frankly, when people can't do an alveolar trill, they're very frequently trying to do it in that way, and no wonder they're failing. They're yes. taking a D and trying to do it more rapidly than a human being could do it. Right. Uh, let me see how. But I bet there's an argument from Fitzmaurice teachers that to get a tremor in your leg, you're not consciously flexing. Quite so. Your, I think right? that what's the, happening is that you're putting yourself in a situation where the reach creates a failure, a muscle failure, yes. and you're getting this. It's very, very similar. It's just not with airflow. It's with opposing yes. one muscle group against another. But you're Indeed. certainly not straightening, flexing, straightening, flexing, straightening, flexing. And in a trill, you're not going da 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 You can't do it that fast. You can't do it that fast. So this bracing component is, to me, it was sort of the secret sauce. When some, I think Doug Honorov 
was the person who brought it up when we chatted about it on the Vastavox those years ago. Um, that this idea of a sort of lateral push outwards into, uh, well, for me, it's on my bicuspids, and I think for many people it's on their bicuspids, because if you look at sort of the roof of the mouth, we have this little pocket that is formed in front of the bicuspids, where the front edge of the tongue sits very nicely. And then the, the sides of the tongue, the beginning of the sides of the tongue, if you will, uh, get sort of smooshed a little bit by the by, by cuspids encroaching into that area. And so the sides of the tongue can fairly easily push into the bicuspids and brace the tongue, give it some rigidity. And that rigidity is a really important component, component, component. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole conversation. We could do a whole episode on, on compass, compass, component, component. <laughs> That we got the, so we've got this braced tongue, so it's got enough rigidity that it will sort of bounce back, and yet enough softness that the air pressure will pop it open for a moment, uh, and then the Bernoulli effect will, can get it going. Well, when you look at a cross-section, a sagittal section of the mouth, and a lot of speech books will show such a cross-section, because you have to give it two-dimensional representation, you don't get the full picture there because your alveolar ridge is not just the bump at the front. It's the whole rim around by your teeth. And in order to send air out the middle in any kind of controlled way, you have to seal it off on the sides. And so in this case, if I didn't seal off the sides and brace a little bit, I wouldn't be able to have this opening and closing door at the front. Indeed. I'd have, I'd have leak on either side. Yes. So that's the second, I guess, the, uh, the other fairly constricted version of an R, uh, which is a trilled alveolar R. But we have to go to France. <laughs> there we go. And do the trill at the back, because the uvular trill is also perceived as a kind of an R. Whereas the brrr on your lips is generally not perceived as an R. No, the... and I, I have to say that uh, I don't know what sorts of words it's in, uh, right. in this language that I can't remember, but I rather doubt it's a substitute for R. It, it doesn't map on the same conceptual territory. Yes. Uh, and acoustically, it's more reminiscent of rapid Bs than it is to rapid R's. Yeah. Um, so if we were to go to the back, the trill here is not actually of the tongue. Whereas at the front, the trill is the front edge of the tongue doing its little dance against the rigid structures of the alveolar ridge and the bicuspid teeth. The trill happening at the back is of the uvula against the, the stiff structure of the back of the tongue. The uvula? The what uvula. Is that? Well, uvula is a lovely word. It comes from the little grape. Uva is grape, so uvala is little grape. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure why we don't say uvala, but we tend to say uvula. Um, and I bet it has something to do with those great vowel shifting English people. Um, it is. Where u becomes u. I, yes, but I'm not going to try to figure that out right now. <laughs> uh, I was so, right about to jump down that rabbit hole, but it, I'm not going. 
um, so the sound is uh, reminiscent of uh, Eartha Kitt as Catwoman going um, and uh, it was one of the great things the great benefits of my youth when I was seven years old I lived outside of Paris and I learned to trill my uvula and uh, um, my, I remember distinctly my father being very envious of my uvular trill. Um, and uh, the r trill at the back, it's kind of a uh, an interesting sound for, for people who don't know how to make it. I've had much more success teaching people to do a uvular trill than doing an alveolar trill. I don't know about you, Phil. Do you find it more e accessible? I, I just find that there aren't a lot of people who can do both, that they have right. one that they can do and the other they can't. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, essentially, the, there is a, a channel for the air to go through. There's, to some degree, you have to make kind of like a an ooh-like shape with the back of the tongue. That is raising uh, the dorsum of the tongue up towards the uvula. Exactly. And then the uvula has to somehow sit in that pocket of, of that channel and bounce, uh, smacking off the back of the tongue to make this closure and opening. So uh, let me ask a question that I think I know the answer to. Are you saying that it's just that little ball, just that little grape bouncing around that's making the sound? No, it's typically the the sort of if you imagine it being a bit like the golden arches of McDonald's, mm. uh, the inside structure of the golden arch is going to be connecting with the back of the tongue. And it's funny, you know, many people th think of the back of their uh, their tonsils and their uvulas being so sensitive that if it touched anything, oh my goodness, they would throw up. Mm. But of course, it touches something every time they swallow. And uh, the the that closure in the back isn't necessarily going to make you gag. Uh, so you might not want to stick your fingers on it, but uh, the, getting that connection isn't such a bad thing. If we can start with a sort of fricative sound back mm -hmm. there, we can get a familiarization of the closure back there and start to play around with the positioning of the dorsum of the tongue in order to get that bouncy uvula, in order to get the trilling action. So since you've brought the fricative into things here, uh -uh. The, uh, I'm, I'm staying clear of saying exactly how these things show up in various languages and accents, which we can come back to. But there's some closeness between and and again, it's a question of approximation as a question of closeness. Right. Uh, let me see if I can put them in a row. Ah, and I can't do any less than that, I think. Ah. <laughs> and so there's a point at which there's regular periodic repetition, uh, orderly repetition, and that's a trill. But when right. it breaks down into rapid, aperiodic, rough sounding, that's a fricative. Right, and often fricative will come with more tension, more closure, because mm -hmm. there needs some space for that trilling action to happen. And if the, the bodies that are needed to trill tense up, 
they lose their ability to go back and forth between the release of the air and the closure. And so a fricative frequently has more tension in it, though it may be um, may have no moment of pure closure the way a trill does. Yes. Yeah, so it's in a way we've said sorry, the, go ahead. the body's moving, as you say, and the surfaces moving. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes jokingly say to students, uh, that's a salivary trill. Uh, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> it's just the moist surfaces going <laughs> rather than the whole uvula going back and forth. Mm. And that's, that's a, so we have either periodicity or aperiodicity, but we also have the sort of ground covered, how far things are moving. And in a fricative, it's the surfaces mainly that are doing the moving. Right. And I, I, I guess before we move on, I, I really have to do my party trick. Yes, please. And that is, I read about this on the passing of a famous phonetician, and I'm afraid I'm not sure who it was. I suspect it was um, Latifoged. Uh, it was fairly recent then. Yes. And his party trick was to do all three trills at once. And this is not that hard to do. You start with your bilabial trill, then you add the alveolar trill, and you add the uvular trills. So it sounds something like this. <laughs> it makes your head feel like it's about to explode, but it's actually not that hard. As long as you've got a lot of air moving through the system, you can do it. Well, uh, let me give it a try, and I think I'm going to try and execute uh, an even more daring maneuver. I'm going to then undo them one at a time. Uh, so, first, lips. That's all of them. Now I'll undo from the lips. I ran into chaos at the end. <laughs> but it is true that you can get uh, all those closures closed in a way that allows for the periodic movement as long as there's enough air flowing through there. Indeed. So co-articulations are possible. So we've moved into fricatives. Let's go back up front to where we make our alveolar trill and make a fricative version of that. Same thing. I've braced down where there isn't a movement and it's just the surface of my tongue through that place. That tells me when we took long time ago we did s and z and z is not in the same place I think as I think that's a little more post alveolar and that's certainly true when I do a fricative version of that if I move it forward and do more channeling I get z Z, z, and then post-alveolar, So I suppose I could go further back and do a retroflex, z, z, z. Uh, That, as far as I know, is not showing up as a rhotic in any particular language. Uh, but you can see that retroflexion 
makes more of a sense of roticity. And post-alveolar sounds more Irish than alveolar. Right. Although in the tap, ara, 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 I think it's that one's probably alveolar for me. Yes. As the tongue curls more towards post-alveolar, towards retroflexion, uh, the sound, the pure uh, phone of the vowel quality is uh, ultimately distorted in a way that it emphasizes the third formant. So there are these overtones, these harmonics of the fundamental frequency. And different postures of the mouth emphasize certain uh, ones of these harmonics or overtones. And the this curling action, this drawing back of the tongue, begins this movement of an accentuation of the third format. And so we get the sound that is generally perceived as rhotic, er, that when we think pirates going ar, that action of the tongue, whatever it may be that we perceive as being arishness, generally correlates to an acoustic energy of this third format. Um, and regardless of how we're going to articulate R, uh, whether we think of it as a vowel or we think of it as a consonant, there's some sort of shaping of the oral tract that's going to highlight this harmonic frequency. Yeah, and this is the sort of meeting ground between acoustic phoneticians and articulatory phoneticians, which is a distinction without a difference. That is to say, the acoustic effect is created by a change in articulation. And so we can describe it in terms of what the mouth is doing or in terms of the resultant acoustic impact or harmonic impact of that shape. So the fact of, uh, really, it is something happening in the back of the mouth, some change in shape there that is I'm not going to say a necessary component, but certainly provides this acoustic boost, this third formant lowering, lowering, yes, mm -hmm. uh, that we perceive as R. We perceive all sounds, we're reading acoustic changes, harmonic changes, and interpreting them as sounds. So yes. uh, we do hear third formant lowering, and we interpret it as Rishness. So that might be the explanation why an alveolar and a uvular trill can both feel like an R. Yes. To get my tongue into the position that it's able to do an alveolar or post-alveolar trill, I kind of have to do something with the back of my tongue just to muscularly manhandle the front of my tongue into that position. Yes. And so there is a... Uh, a velar or a uvular component to that sound as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And we ran into this with L as well, and there are, there are a lot of similarities between the, these two classes of sounds. So we've gone to fricative, and we've looked at the possibility of an alveolar fricative, uh, zh, sounding like an R. What we haven't dealt with yet is difference in voicing. Probably because most trills are voiced. 
Uh, but we could certainly make an unvoiced alveolar trill, ra, ra, uh, unvoiced. And you might get that after a voiceless consonant more likely than anywhere exactly. else. So, try, exactly. And similarly, uh, yeah, I'm thinking I, I knew an Israeli guy whose last name was Kranz. And I'd say that R in Kranz, K-R-A-N-Z, uh, was unvoiced. Right. And it was probably pretty fricative as well, just because of mm -hmm. the necessity of moving from a tightly closed k sound into r, r. Terrific. If we move any further open, devoicing becomes a less useful uh, distinction. Uh, because so we're moving into an approximate, yeah. right? And, and the, the, the thing we've learned yes. in earlier episodes is that when we move out of fricatives into approximates, devoicing or voiceless approximates don't register as consonants because they lack uh, turbulence. And without turbulence, we can't have a voiceless sound because it just reads as a vowel. Yes. An open airstream. I could make a, a z fricative, and I could make a sh fricative. But if I make a r consonant and I make a, a, a proximant and I devoice that, I get ha. Uh, there's no sound to hear there, because it's in a, it's a purely acoustic harmonic difference, not a noise difference. I, so if if you said if you whispered. Oh really? Oh, oh really? really? You to make that acoustically something that we can hear loud enough that it makes a sound. You actually have to articulate it more tightly, so that it will make a fricative sound, so that we can hear that R. I want to take a little footnote into a historical development here that I read about in preparation for this, and that's uh, something called. Uh, roticism. And that's the historical change of things that aren't R into R. Uh, the word honor, H-O-N-O-R, at least the way I spell it, uh, went through this process and was originally honos. It was an S sound. So how does honos change to honor? I think it changes like this. Honosh, 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 honor. Honor, it's uh, it's the alveolar post-alveolar shift uh, that begins to move us into something that sounds more like an R, and it's the addition of voicing, or maybe the additionally the movement into a trill, honor, that that makes it sound like an R. Uh, this happens with N's, with S's. And with another consonant that I, I can't think of right now. But it's a it's a historical change for mm. comparative linguistics and for the history of language change. It's not something that we really can observe in accents today. At least I can't think of an example. Okay. So now we're into approximate territory, which, as we've said, means that we're voiced. I'm a little bit shy of going into the various approximate 
pronunciations because we're going to start to get into issues of uh, the adequacy of the IPA to record these things and variations between American and UK accents. So let me just model an alveolar approximant R. Ra, ra, a ra. Now, if I went closer to the articulator, if I, if I got closer to the alveolar or post-alveolar position, keeping it voiced, I get ra, ra, ra. And in Czech, apparently, there's a, a version of that. And I suppose in dialectical variations of English, you could hear someone say, round the rough and rugged rock. Uh, and usually, in my experience, uh, that's accompanied by some lip rounding. R round and round the rugged rugged rock. I, I, and um, I'm going to suggest that we leave the notion of lip rounding <laughs> off as well, because it's that will occupy us as well. I just want to jump back to the uh, uvular position and see if we can find a uvular approximant R. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, ah, It starts to, at least to my ear, not sound much like an R at that point. But if we take a word that we know, we start with, uh, let's say, a uvular trill. Uh, let's say it's the word red. 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 That's the fricative version. And red. 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 Yes, lip rounding is something that will be useful for us to think about as an additional part of that, but let's mm, walk away from it. Yeah, I mean, it might be um, easier to to hear that approximate R if it's between two vowels. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we were going to say a redhead, a redhead, a redhead, a redhead, uh, we might hear that approximate, a redhead, m more as an R, yeah. whereas an initial uh, redhead, a redhead, uh, harder, harder to do, um, might be more likely to flip into the fricative you know, as an initial sound. One word that's really useful in thinking about how these variations happen from language to language is the word red, because in Spanish it's rojo, uh, in English, it's red. In German, it's rot. In French, it's rouge. Uh, the Persian word, one of my students just told me, yes, and the Persian word is, and it's slipping my mind, so I'll have to think of that for next time. There is... There was one more thing I wanted to say about this. Ah, yeah. When looking at the Wikipedia page, the uvular trilled R was listed as German stage standard, German stage pronunciation. And that reminded me of one of my favorite recordings of uh, Mac the Knife by Uta Lamperer, uh, in which she sings, Doch das Messer sieht man nicht. And so the R is just extended to an incredible length. But that is not common German pronunciation. Uh, Messer, Messer. It's, I'd say that might be closer to an approximate articulation. Mm. Uh, and certainly we could imagine that in, in French as well. 
a variation which in the degree of trillishness or frication <laughs> fricativity uh yes uh, certainly uh rouge rouge that uh often the r can be particularly when you're talking very quickly uh that uh that uh uvular fricative can be more of an approximate well i think that it might be wise for us to leave things there we still have phonetic representations to deal with we have some really probably for our listeners some really important questions about how english speakers deal with the variations of ours particularly in their pre and post vocalic positions that i right. think that'll take us at least two more episodes and then we'll tackle intervocalic in after Indeed. That. There's there's a lot of great stuff, and people spend a lot of time on our in-speech training programs because it has strong effects on intelligibility and on character. Indeed. And and there are you know traditions of the way people say things in certain cultural groups and that don't exist in other groups, and so we have to kind of learn yeah. those possibilities to, to appreciate the potential for those R's. So... I have a suggestion to make to our listeners that if you are one of those people who listens to the podcast right away, uh, I'm going to imagine that such people exist, and there are things about R that you'd like to hear, email us right away at glossonomia at gmail.com. Is that right? It is. I it just is right. always doubt myself when I say that. Uh, and, and say, please cover this. And we shall. And the other thing that they could do is they could join our Facebook group. Yes, which I just made before recording today. Uh, it's an open group, so if you search for Glossonomia on Facebook, you'll find it. And uh, it's open. You can join it. Uh, you may get a friend request from me or from Eric after that, and that'll be our way of meeting you and interacting with you if we don't know you already. Right. And I think that that is it. Eric, thank you so much. It's always Thanks, a pleasure. And I, I always learn uh, from this process. And uh, I appreciate that. This has really actually enhanced my teaching quite a bit. Me too. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So even if there was nobody out there listening, I think we <laughs> would have a great time doing this. So, But to you listeners, you know, I, I, the other day I got an email from somebody that, that uh, told me that, you know, another person was listening to the podcast and they were very appreciative and I, I just feel so honored to have the opportunity to share the the goodness with others so i, I uh, also thank you feel listeners. terrified that <laughs> that people will actually listen to what i'm saying and i could be completely wrong so <laughs> please tell us if we're wrong yes please well, we look forward to hearing from you uh, with your feedback and your suggestions for upcoming episodes. And uh, I, I look forward to the next time we get to do this, Phil. Likewise. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.